0: Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 24th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. Let's check and see what the weather is going to be like. First of all, for today, it's to be a little bit of snow. That's possible with a northeasterly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour. The high today will be 23. The low will be 14. Then tomorrow... Look for it to be partly sunny with a southwesterly wind at 5 to 15 miles per hour, a high of 40 and a low of 23. Come Sunday, partly sunny, southeasterly wind at 10 to 20 miles per hour. Sunday's high is expected to be 48 with a low of 41. Monday, rain likely windy too, with a southeasterly wind at 20 to 40 plus miles per hour, but a high of 49 and a low of 26. Today's top weather story is from meteorologist Jan Ryherd. Much like the last several weeks, we'll find out a little bit about the winter storm and today will be our chilly day. Look for wind chills at the warmest parts of the afternoon to reach into the upper teens to around 20 degrees. Mid-air or mild air rather is quick to follow, again similar to the last several weeks. Highs Saturday will reach around 40 with a partly cloudy sky overhead. Snow and ice should continue melting. Sunday is warmer still, soaring into the 40s with some pushing 50 south of I-80. While similar temperatures are expected Monday, more moisture and instability could lead to some thunderstorms in the area. You'll want to check back for the latest forecast updates through the weekend as hail and gusty winds cannot be ruled out. And that's today's top weather story from meteorologist Jan Reihard. So let's go to the front page of today's Gazette. Is a story for people mainly in Marion. Written by Brittany J. Miller of the Gazette. Headline, Marion's Hard Water, Unsafe or Inconvenient? Dateline, Marion. Since Tina Stewart, age 45 moved into her Marion home in 2000, she's replaced her water heater and her water softener three times each. Her sump pump and garbage disposal have fallen into disrepair multiple times too. The culprit, she says, the hard water that courses through Marion's pipes and spits out at faucets, leaving its remnants in showers, baths, and sinks. Altogether, Stewart estimates She and her husband have spent thousands of dollars in related repairs over the years. Even then, she said, they're too scared to drink the city's water. She said, we started buying drinking water because we don't want to drink the water out of our faucets. Marion isn't the only Iowa town fueled by hard water. In fact, Most of the Midwest and much of the United States draws on hard water, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. Still, the water has left a bad taste in Marion residents' mouths, literally. Some question the safety of the drinking water, and most complain about the hardness. While Marion's hard water may be an inconvenience, experts have assured it's safe to drink, and for those with the means and motivation, there are solutions. Hard water is defined by its high amounts of calcium and magnesium, natural minerals that are found in the human body, a variety of foods, and certain types of rocks. Marion taps into two aquifers, the Cambrian-Ordovician Aquifer, commonly known as the Jordan Aquifer, and the Silurian Devonian Aquifer, with wells stretching down hundreds of feet at four main sites. The water, which has percolated through rocks over time, has picked up natural mineral minerals like calcium, magnesium, iron, potassium, sodium, and sulfate along the way. Once the water is pulled from the ground, it gets a shot of chlorine gas for disinfection. Flows from two wells are run through the city's new $2.8 million iron removal plant that uses special filters to strip excessive iron, which can make untreated water murky. Then the water is sold and sent to customers. Todd Steigerwalt, the general manager of the Marion Water Department, says, We're lucky. We have affordable water because our treatment process is very, very simple. Marion's minimum monthly charge, which includes up to 1,500 gallons of water, currently starts at $15.25 and will likely increase in July to $15.40. Water that tests over 10.5 grains per gallon is considered very hard. Marion's water hardness varies between 18 and 20 grains, which translates to roughly a pound of limestone rock for every 350 gallons of water. That was an estimate of Mark Daubitz, the general manager of Culligan of Marion, a water treatment equipment supplier. Aside from Cedar Rapids, which pulls its water from shallower wells along the Cedar River, several other communities and private wells in the area draw from the same aquifers as Marion. The water hardness is about the same, said Territory Manager Josh Rodriguez of Culligan, who said, People always tell me, when I'm out in the field, how horrible Marion's water is. I kind of smile and I usually tell them it's just the water in this whole part of the country. Rest assured, hard water is safe to drink. Even more so, experts say, it can be beneficial. Calcium and magnesium are essential nutrients in the body. And deficits are associated to health problems like cancer, strokes, and obesity, according to the World Health Organization. Drinking hard water may better contribute those minerals to our diets. Stegerwalt said, a lot of people take multivitamins. Well, the extra minerals come for free in our water. That isn't to say hard water can't be a nuisance. It can cause scale or mineral deposits to build up on pipes, fixtures, sinks, and more. The residue makes water heaters less efficient and can affect household appliances. The calcium also reacts and interferes with soap and cleaning supplies, creating a slick film on skin and surfaces. All regulated contaminants in Marion's drinking water are within state and federal guidelines, according to the Water Department's annual water quality reports. Calcium and magnesium aren't regularly tested because they're not regulated. Measurements are taken when new wells are created, showing a range of 69 to 100 milligrams of calcium, depending on the well, and a range of 21 to 36 milligrams of magnesium. Iron is currently tested daily at the iron removal plant, where the mineral is completely filtered out. The Environmental Protection Agency's Non-enforceable guideline for iron in drinking water is 0.3 milligrams per liter due to its impacts to water color, taste, scaling, corrosion, and staining. According to Dubitz, the number one thing we want to stress to our customers, to the general public, is that Marion is doing a great job providing safe, potable water. There should be zero fears fears that there's a health concern with the water coming into the home. For those who don't like their hard water, there is a solution, one that Stegerwald calls a luxury and Dubitz calls an aesthetic discussion, and that is water softeners. The equipment is filled with tiny plastic heads that are saturated with sodium chloride or salt. As the hard water passes through the machine, the calcium and magnesium ions in the water swap places with the sodium ions in the beads. A salt solution periodically rinses the beads to recharge them, and the process continues. The result? Softer water with a little extra sodium, so those with high blood pressure or kidney disease should consult a doctor before installation. Dubitz estimates that about 85% of Marion homes have a water softener or filtration system on their main line. The price tags on the equipment can vary from around $600 to more than $5,000, but the softer water can alleviate damage to fixtures and appliances, require less soap, and increase the efficiency of water heaters. Dubitz says, for most customers, you can break it into under a dollar a day expense in their home. It could actually become a financial positive choice. Cedar Rapids already has a softening plant for its city water. For Marion, though, softening water before it reaches homes could triple or quadruple current water rates. Steinwald then estimated that since the city's water infrastructure is not centralized, any softening equipment would have to be replicated at each of the four main sites, along with labor and construction costs. Stegerwald also said some customers, admittedly fewer, say they prefer the hard water. He said, We do have a lot of customers, so we can't please everyone. Water softeners are Customized, customizable for the individual. They have super, super soft water, or they can have hard water if they choose. They can kind of dial it into their own preference. Also on the front page today is a story written by Aaron Jordan of the Gazette. Pipe filing won't seek eminent domain. Dateline Cedar Rapids, Wolf Carbon Solutions will not use eminent domain to acquire easements for a carbon dioxide pipeline through eastern Iowa, according to the company's permit application that was filed Thursday with the Iowa Utilities Board. That decision to obtain all the land for the pipeline route through voluntary easements sets the Wolf project apart from two other proposed CO2 pipelines in Iowa and sidesteps the most contentious aspect of the pipeline development. Nick Knoppinger, Wolf's vice president for corporate development, told the Gazette, The Wolf development team has never used eminent domain in its collective careers in building long-haul pipelines, and it doesn't intend to start now. He said the company has not yet signed any easement deals. He went on to say, In our history of developing pipelines, we feel it's more important to develop relationships with all the people in the right-of-way pathway before we start talking to them about easements. We'll begin negotiations on easements in the next couple months. Walt's proposal calls for collecting compressed carbon dioxide at ADM plants in Cedar Rapids and Clinton and shipping it in a 16-inch underground pipeline to ADM's sequestration site near Decatur, Illinois. Wolf wants to find other industrial clients to tie into the project, which would be eligible for up to $1 billion a year in federal tax credits. The 280-mile project, with 95 of those miles in Iowa, would provide $1.1 billion to economic development for Iowa, Wolf officials said at an informational meeting in December in Cedar Rapids. In Linn County, there would be 311 jobs during construction of the pipeline, bringing in $22 million. Iowa has two other proposed CO2 pipeline projects that already have applied for permits from regulators. Summit Carbon Solutions proposes a five-state pipeline with 680 miles in northern and western Iowa that would end at a site in North Dakota. The Iowa Utilities Board last week released a schedule calling for the public hearing on the summit project to happen between October and January. Navigator CO2 Ventures wants to build a 1,300-mile underground pipeline with 900 Iowa miles stretching from the northwest to the southeast corners of the state. Both of those companies have asked the Iowa Utilities Board to be granted the right to use eminent domain to force easements with compensation from landowners who don't sell willingly. Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance Director Doug Newman said in August that the organization supports a carbon dioxide pipeline that would benefit ADM, one of its members, despite opposition from many landowners on the proposed route. Newman said, we have looked at this project And our organization supports this project, and only this CO2 pipeline project in Iowa at this time. To support the agribusiness economy of Iowa, we need companies like ADM to be successful. ADM has been producing ethanol since 1980 and operates a heavy-volume wet mill and a dry mill, as well as a cogeneration plant just south of Highway 30 in Cedar Rapids. Besides ethanol, the company produces starches, sweeteners, and animal feed. The Cedar Rapids site employs 450, with another 200 and 300 skilled trade contractors on site, officials told the Gazette in October. The Wolf Project has a lot of local opponents, including people who posted signs against it near Ely. More than 150 people attended a rally February 21st at the Iowa Capitol, denouncing the pipeline projects. Concerns include fear of explosions, landowner rights, and uncertainty about what happens after the pipeline's 20-year lifespan. Iowa House Republicans advanced a House file which would require CO2 pipeline companies to obtain 90 percent of the miles along their path through voluntary easements. The bill also would place a moratorium on projects until the Federal Pipeline and Hazardous Material Safety Administration develops new rules that govern the hazardous pipelines. Here's a front page story with a local slant. Written by Caleb McCullough of the Gazette's Des Moines Bureau, it says House may ban transgender care for minors. As Republican lawmakers advance bills that members of Iowa's LGBTQ community say targets them for discrimination, the Iowa House now may take up a ban on providing gender-affirming care for transgender minors, according to House Speaker Pat Grassley. His comments came as the House Government Oversight Committee heard testimony from doctors that deal with transgender patients who said providing gender-affirming care to minors is a methodical and deeply personalized process that involves multiple doctors and the consent of patients. Grassley a Republican from New Hartford speaking before the hearing Thursday said, based on some of the information we've had shared with us, I think that there could be an expectation of seeing some legislation potentially coming forward, but obviously we want to see how that hearing plays itself out. Gransley did not say what exactly the legislation would entail, but he said it could include a ban on puberty blockers, hormones and surgeries, all interventions that are used with varying frequency on youth whose gender identity does not align with their sex at birth. The move would contradict the guidance of several major medical groups, including the American Medical Association, the American Pediatric Association, and the American Association of Psychiatrists. In a letter to state governors in 2021, the American Medical Association urged against limiting the practice and said gender-affirming care correlates with a reduction in mental health problems and suicide attempts. A wave of similar legislation in Republican-led states has been considered this year, and Utah and Florida are among the states that have enacted such bans. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst of Windsor Heights said the hearing on gender-affirming care was performance and Democrats would oppose any legislation that bans gender-affirming care for minors. Said at the end of the day, this is really just a show. If something does come forward uh, or if something if moves along from the Senate, or some language moves forward, of course, we'll be opposing that. But we want to make sure that any legislation we do with regard to health care is based on science and expertise and not internet conspiracy theories. Legislation has been proposed in the Senate that would ban gender-affirming puberty blockers, hormones, or surgeries for minors and would allow a person to bring a lawsuit against a doctor who performs the care, but the measures have not moved through the committee process. In the hearing yesterday, lawmakers heard from Katie Imborek, co-director of the University of Iowa Healthcare. LGBTQ plus clinic, and Dave Williams, the chief medical officer at Unity Point Health, on the medical care that the facilities provide. Imborek said the UI follows guidelines set up by medical organizations, including the Pediatric and Doctrine Society, to treat youth with gender dysphoria. The clinic treats minors that have been diagnosed by a mental health professional. The clinic does not use any medical intervention on minors before they've reached puberty and does not perform genital reconstruction surgery on minors, according to what Imboric said. When a patient who has been diagnosed with gender dysphoria reaches puberty, the clinic may prescribe a medication that stops puberty. It's called puberty blockers, later in adolescence. It may prescribe hormone treatments and in some cases perform a surgery to remove breast tissue. Emboric said gender-affirming care leads to a decrease in behavioral and emotional problems, depression, and suicidal ideation. She said no one is rushed through this process. Minors are not provided care without parental support. The evidence shows it not only helps but can be life-saving. Republicans raised concerns about providing irreversible or semi-irreversible care to minors who they said are not old enough to make informed decisions about their gender identities. Representative Brooke Bowden of Indianola, who chairs the committee, said the brain still is developing in adolescence and questioned whether a teenager can make the decision to undergo a mastectomy. Imboric and gender transition said in gender transition surgeries are rare for minors. It has been performed five times in the last year is all at the UI hospitals, and on people who have been living in their gender identity for a long time and have severe gender dysphoria. Republicans also asked about the frequency of detransitioning or people deciding to discontinue gender transition care. Imboric said she can count on one hand the number of patients who have chosen to stop hormone therapy in her practice. She said data on adults who detransition shows that a vast majority of them do so because of social pressure, not because they change their gender identity. Representative Phil Thompson, the Republican of Boone, said, When we're talking about irreversible surgeries or partially irreversible surgeries or really changing children's endocrine systems that affect them over a lifetime, I don't think we know that we're not doing harm to those children, especially the ones who chose to reverse these therapies. Emboric said she is worried a ban on gender-affirming care would have devastating effects on her patients, who she said have thrived with care. She said, I am probably worried most that my patients who have already started down this path that are minors, and this would be really devastating for them. Keenan Crow is a lobbyist with LGBTQ Activist Group 1 Iowa and said the banning of the care would be dangerous for transgender youth. Crowe said, we should be letting evidence, science, and medical consensus drive those conversations, not the biases of a few politicians trying to score political points against a marginalized group of children. Now let's move on to the Insight page where we have a Gazette editorial whose headline says, Slow Down Reorganization. In her Condition of the State Speech, Governor Kim Reynolds promised to offer legislation reorganizing and streamlining state government. The governor said, I look forward to signing it into law and aligning state government with the only reason it exists, which is serving Iowans. But her pledge comes in the form of a complex 1,600-page bill that is currently moving through the legislature. It's impossible to argue that advancing her plan in such a massive piece of legislation serves Iowans. To the contrary, this process makes it exceedingly difficult for Iowans to understand how their government is being reshaped and the results of those actions. We simply urge the legislature to slow down, Iowans need more time to comprehend what's happening and ask important questions about such a sweeping reorganization of the government that serves them, and they pay for with their taxes. Neither Republicans nor Democrats should be supportive of this process. We understand that Republicans who control the House and Senate have broken the bill into pieces for consideration, but even so. They've split a gigantic bill into massive pieces that still are difficult to digest, and there's been precious little time provided for Iowans to weigh in. Already, the bill has been approved by the Senate State Government Committee, making it available for debate by the full Senate. The bill's scope can't be understated. It makes large changes to several state departments and agencies. Governing boards that exist under current law, vanish. New boards are created. Services and programs are shifted to new departments. Jobs are being eliminated. Independent entities created with protections from political influence will now serve at the pleasure of the governor. Control over numerous functions is being shifted to the governor's office. The bill would lower the bar for Senate confirmation of gubernatorial appointees from 34 votes in the Senate to 30. The bill emphasizes that the Attorney General has the power to step in and prosecute local cases without a request from the county attorney. The bill would remove authority from local community-based corrections boards to the Department of Corrections. These are just a few of the changes included in this bill. They're the sort of proposals that should undergo comprehensive vetting and the participation of stakeholders affected by changes. But instead of a process that makes room for nuanced concerns and questions, it seems the main objective is to navigate this titanic-sized bill to passage. It's worth noting that the merger of the Department of Human Services and Department of Public Health took two years to undertake, and that some of the process happened before they sought legislative changes. Lawmakers are deciding what our state government should look like and how it will serve the people of Iowa. It deserves careful deliberation. That can happen only if lawmakers slow down and seek wisdom from beyond the Golden Dome. And that is today's Gazette editorial. And we have three community letters today. The first one comes from Lou Leonard of Lone Tree. He says, I'm sorry that Stan Padima, letter to the editor, February 20th, hasn't been having delivery of his paper going well. In Lone Tree, for my 12 years, I have had excellent delivery results. I think credit, where credit is due, is also important. And that's from Lou Leonard of Lone Tree. Also, we have one from Jim Leonard of Iowa City, who says, None of the Marengo Fire stories that I have seen go into whether or not it is even possible to break down shingles into oil, sand, and fiberglass. And would it be economically viable? It seems like a dubious, hazardous proposition all the way around. How much oil can you extract from a shingle? That's from Jim Leonard of Iowa City. And there's one from Mary Mokler of Cedar Rapids who says, Everyone should read and heed Saturday's column by Debbie Koopman. They can still talk about politics with politeness and civility. Well, it was fun not so long ago when we could do that. What a shame upon our people and politicians that our country has become so divided and opinionated that we can no longer listen to each other. Of course, we will not all agree, and that's okay, but we can all listen with respect to each other's opinions and perhaps learn from another's perspective. Good conversations and exchange of ideas can help us come together as a nation and work together for good government. And that is from Mary Mochler of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 24th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. We have only one in the shorter other notices. That's from Cedar Rapids. Edna May Pisek, ninety-seven died Wednesday, February 22nd. The Tehan Funeral Home and Cremation Services of Cedar Rapids is in charge of those arrangements. Now for the longer, more detailed obituaries. Alva Eugene Van Alst, age 85, of Central City, passed away on Tuesday, February 21st at his home. A funeral service will be held at 1030, Tuesday morning, February 28th, at Radiant Church at 3233 Blairs Ferry Road Northeast in Cedar Rapids, with Pastor Rick Gale officiating. The family will greet friends and family from 9 a.m. until service time on Tuesday at the church. In agreement with his wishes, cremation will take place after the service. Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Marion is assisting the family. Mark Stephen Wharton age sixty seven of Cedar Rapids passed away at his home on Wednesday, february twenty second, surrounded by his loving family. A memorial visitation will be offered at the Cedar Valley Bible Church at thirty six thirty six Cottage Grove Avenue Southeast on Monday, february twenty seventh, from two PM until service time at three PM, with Pastor Joel de Souza officiating. Memorial contributions may be made in his name to Dogs Forever and or His Hands Free Clinic. A beautiful soul passed away unexpectedly on February 8th at the age of 69, Susan K. Voorhees of Cedar Rapids, but there is no information on services. Wayne Edward Huchlin, aged 90 of Edgewood, Passed away on Wednesday, February twenty second, at the Edgewood Convalescent Home of Natural Causes. There will be a memorial service at eleven o'clock, Saturday morning, March fourth, at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Edgewood, with the Reverend Mary Green officiating. Visitation will be from nine till eleven a.m., Saturday, March fourth, at the Leonard Muller Funeral Home in Edgewood. In earnment with military rights will be at the Edgewood Cemetery in Edgewood. Turning our attention now to the sports page, we have a college wrestling story having to do with Coe, written by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette. It says, Cohawks Hawks Henderson defies the odds. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. Brady Henderson recalled the long ride home from Decorah. He couldn't avoid negative thoughts and doubt whether he would wrestle again after a second broken ankle in two years. This time, the injury occurred during his second match of his senior campaign at the Luther Open. He said, it was just a roller coaster of emotions all year last year. This year, coming back to the room and everything is going good. The First tournament of the year, I break my other ankle. Out for the year, the doctors told me I won't be able to come back. Despite the initial prognosis, Henderson has returned to the co-college lineup for the NCAA Division III Lower Midwest Regional today and Saturday at the Boss Center in Springfield, Illinois. The Cohawks hawks are among the 19-team field that includes the rest of the American Rivers Conference program, Cornell, and schools from Illinois, Missouri, Arkansas, Alabama, and Texas. Henderson, who is one and one at 157 pounds, said, coming back and getting this chance is cool in a way. It's an opportunity to prove myself. The odds are stacked against me. I haven't competed in two to three months. I had three weeks to get ready and go to the toughest tournament in D3 wrestling and give it all I've got. It'll be fun to see what happens. The upbeat approach may not have emerged had it not been for his close friends and teammates who rallied around him when he was crestfallen after the setback. Notably, Coe's Riley Wright and Riker Kurinsky provided the support that inspired him to remain engaged with the team. Henderson said, They didn't care if I could compete or not. They just cared about how I was doing. I just put it in perspective. They were there for me when I needed them. It's also my job to be a friend and brother to them. Henderson donned a wrestling boot, but still attended practice. The 2021 National Wrestling Coaches Association 157 pound national finalist and two time state runner up for North Lynn realized he could make an impact in a different way, sharing his wrestling knowledge of positions and techniques on the mat and how to handle the emotions of it. Co coach John Ostendorp said, I've been really impressed with how he's dealt with it. The best responses also were the hardest to embrace. Henderson agonized over being a spectator instead of a participant especially when the cohawks toiled to a nine and six dual record five and three in the ARC Henderson said I'm not gonna lie I was re- it was really hard going to practice some days sitting there watching and then going to duels duels were really tough the most recent visit to the doctor revealed competing wouldn't Cause long term damage. Henderson was told if he could tolerate the pain and strain, then he could give it a go, and he said, Why not give it a try? The field this weekend includes four top 20 programs, including number one Wartburg, number five North Central, number 14 Loris, and 20th ranked Luther. 35 ranked wrestlers will contend for NCAA tournament berths. The top three at each weight advanced to the national tournament, which is problematic for weights like heavyweight that boast five ranked wrestlers, in addition to Coe's returning All-American, Caleb Reeves. In boys' high school basketball from last night, the Class 3A substate semifinals were held, and there were some area teams in action. Marion defeated Decora 71-68, Williamsburg was eliminated at the hands of Des Moines Hoover, 65-49. Mount Vernon's season came to an end via a 64-61 defeat by Charles City. Solon kept alive, beating Mount Pleasant, 49-36. And Cedar Rapids Xavier is still going strong, having defeated West Dubuque, 64-53. In girls' regional finals, in Class 1A, North Lynn won a spot at the state tournament by beating Montezuma 69-40. to 40. And in Class 3A, Iowa City Regina defeated Minneapolis in overtime 55-54. to 54. Moving back to the news section of the paper, we go to the Iowa Today page and a story written by Emily Anderson of the Gazette, Dateline Cedar Rapids. One person was injured Wednesday evening in a shooting in the 1500 block of 3rd Avenue Southeast, according to the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Police were called to the scene at 6.03 p.m. Wednesday for reports of shots fired. They found a 26-year-old man suffering from apparent gunshot wounds. The man who has not been identified, was treated and transported to a hospital, according to a news release. The extent of his injuries or his condition were not provided. Investigators interviewed witnesses and asked anyone with information about the incident to call the Linn County Crime uh, Stoppers at 1-800-272-7463. Also on the Iowa Today page, a story written by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette, prosecutor to use Chicago man's comments to recommend prison. Dateline, Cedar Rapids. A prosecutor will ask a judge to run consecutive sentences, 107 years in total, for a Chicago man who told the deputy he shot during a robbery that his injuries should have been worse. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks filed a motion yesterday on his attempt to present evidence at the sentencing of Stanley L. Donahue that Donahue told the Lynn County Sheriff's Deputy Will Halverson quote, it should have been worse than it was and cursed him as he was taken out in handcuffs after a jury convicted him on 10 charges on Tuesday. The 38-year-old Donahue was convicted of attempted murder of a peace officer two charges of first-degree robbery, woeful injury causing serious injury, attempt to elude, two charges of false imprisonment, trafficking in stolen weapons, disarming a police officer, and felon in possession of a firearm. Donahue robbed a Casey store in Coggin on June 20, 2021, and fired 10 shots at Officer Halverson, striking him in the torso and leg seven times when he was responding to the alarm. In his motion, Maybanks said Donahue's remarks were captured on a video feed posted on the Gazette's website, which was obtained by the Lynn County Sheriff's Office. Donahue's comments also were heard by many onlookers in the audience, including Lt. Dave Buter of the Sheriff's Office. The statement is an aggravating factor for the court to consider for sentencing in this case and will be used by the prosecution, along with other factors, to make an argument for stacked sentencing, Maybank said. Sentencing for Donahue is set for May 5th. According to testimony, Donahue entered the convenience store that night, and when he went to pay a store employee, Jacob Christensen, at the front counter, pointed the gun and said, Give me the money. Christensen pulled out the top drawer, bills stacked in the register with a clip and receipt attached, which triggered a silent alarm. During the robbery, Donahue also took numerous cigarette cartons, gift cards, car chargers and other items from the store. He also took Christensen's wallet and a purse from another employee named Maddie Stepanek. Christensen and Stepanek were forced into the cooler and a few minutes later they heard gunshots. Halverson said he didn't see a clerk inside and saw only a man, later identified as Donahue, standing at the front counter with a garbage bag over his shoulder. He tried to grab Donahue's arm to detain him, but he pulled away and started shooting at Halverson. Tearing up as he recalled his thoughts that night, Halverson said, it felt like a hundred times. This isn't a dream. This is real life. Halverson testified that he thought he was going to die. When he was down on the floor, he felt tugging on his right side where his 40 caliber Glock was holstered and felt it being removed. The evidence included surveillance video from the store, which showed Donahue wearing a hoodie, committing the robbery and shooting. Donahue fled the store before other deputies arrived, but one deputy pursued his van. After Donahue crashed on a bridge in Coggin, deputies found more stolen items, Halverson's Glock and Donahue's gun used in the shooting in the van. Donahue was arrested 14 hours after the robbery when a TV news crew spotted him walking along Aldrich Road in Coggin. A story written by Vanessa Miller of the Gazette says universities have $15 billion impact. With lawmakers in the throes of deciding how much money to appropriate Iowa's public universities for the upcoming budget year, the State Board of Regents this week released a new economic impact report showing its campuses collectively added $14.9 billion to the state's economy in the 2022 budget year. The combined impact from the University of Iowa, Iowa State University, and the University of Northern Iowa operations, construction, Healthcare, economic development, research activity, visitor and student spending, volunteerism, and alumni support is equal to about 7% of the state's gross state product, according to the report. According to the report, educational institutions are like beekeepers, while their principal aim is to provide education and raise people's earnings. In the process, they create an array of external benefits. Students' health and lifestyles are improved and socially indirectly benefits just as orchard owners indirectly benefit from beekeepers. The study, conducted by Lightcast, which did the region's first economic impact study in 2018, found the university's total economic impact equal to supporting 1,090 or 198,837 jobs. According to the study, which does not take into account the campus's extension and outreach activities, for perspective, this means that one out of every ten jobs in Iowa is supported by the activities of the universities and their students. Regarding income assistance, the report found $8.9 million in savings stemming from a reduced number of persons in need of welfare or unemployment benefits. And today we have a story written by Brittany J. Miller of the Gazette about COVID. She says, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services will no longer require labs to report COVID test results to the state starting April 1st. That department announced Thursday afternoon in a news release. Since rapid at-home tests have grown in popularity and aren't required to be reported, the department said the weekly case and positive test events in the state are no longer as meaningful as they once were. The release said, quote, this type of reporting no longer accurately reflects the prevalence of the virus in the state. Iowa HHS has required labs to report any processed COVID-19 test results to the state public health division and then in the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention since March of 2020. The department has been releasing the data on a weekly basis since July of 2021. Before that, COVID data was updated daily. The state pulled the plug on two state-managed pandemic websites early last year. Also starting April 1st, Iowa HHS will get rid of its current COVID reporting dashboard and start incorporating the data in its weekly respiratory virus surveillance reports. Iowa currently has no mandatory reporting of any other respiratory viruses such as flu, RSV, and rhinovirus. It's important for Iowas to know that the Public Health Division will monitor the virus just as we do for other respiratory illnesses, said State Medical Director Robert Cruz in the department's news release, who went on to say, the Public Health Division will continue to work collaboratively with our local health departments, healthcare partners in the state, and partners at the federal level. Earlier this month, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced plans for the federal public health emergency for COVID-19 to expire May 11th. Test Iowa at Home will continue to offer free COVID testing for Iowans through the end of 2023. In the Iowa HHS's Wednesday COVID-19 data release, the number of new cases in Iowa was down over the last week, but hospitalizations were up by more than 17%. As of this week, 900,343 Iowans have tested positive for the virus since the beginning of the pandemic nearly three years ago. Brittany J. Miller is the energy and environmental reporter for the Gazette and a core member with Report for America, a national service program that places journalists in local newsrooms to report on undercovered issues. Moving on to the Business 380 page, we have a story written by Sarah Conrad Baranowski of the Gazette about Transamerica. Dateline Cedar Rapids. Transamerica Life Insurance Company, a subsidiary of Aegon Global Services, will lay off 42 people at its Cedar Rapids location, according to a Worker Adjustment and Retaining Notification Act notice, which was filed February 17th. A company spokesperson confirmed that the layoffs on Wednesday said they would save affected employees have received at least 60 days' notice. The earliest terminations will be March 21st. All of the positions eliminated will be at the company's offices at 6400 C Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids, which currently has about 1,600 employees. Last year the company told the Gazette that the Cedar Rapids offices employed 925 people. A spokesperson attributed fluctuations in office numbers to the pandemic and arrangements were that allowed people to work from home. The spokesperson said in an email, we recognize that this is difficult news and we are keenly aware of the impact these actions have taken on our employees and their families. We have met with affected colleagues to offer support and resources as they prepare to transition to other opportunities inside or outside of the company. As of Thursday, Transamerica's website listed 69 open positions in Cedar Rapids and 69 work-from-home jobs in the U.S. This is the fourth round of layoffs for Transamerica's Cedar Rapids location in the last year. In June of last year, the company announced the elimination of 40 jobs. Another 15 positions were cut in September, and the company announced in October it would eliminate 55 jobs by the end of 2022. The spokesperson said the latest layoffs are across business lines and functions to adapt to changes in customer needs and demands. An email from the company said, This announcement does not impact the delivery of Transamerica's current products and services. While the company continues to execute its growth strategy and drive strong commercial momentum, like any business in our industry, Transamerica is impacted by market factors. Transamerica and its parent company, Agon, employ nearly 2,400 people in Iowa. Last June, Transamerica auctioned its 51-acre Cedar Rapids campus on Edgewood Road Northeast near Highway 100 for $7.02 million. The property was purchased by Homestart International, which has offices in the Quad Cities and plans to develop the land. And another story concerning a Cedar Rapids business, Collins Aerospace. The largest employer in Cedar Rapids has signed an agreement with a Saudi Arabian firm to develop combat drones for the kingdom's military. A Memorandum of Understanding was signed Tuesday during the International Defense Exhibition and Conference 2023 in the United Arab Emirates. Collins will provide its expertise in unmanned aerial system integration to SRB Aerial Systems, to assess and assist in developing the advanced drones that's according to a Collins Aerospace news release the new drone was showcased at the expo at the stand manned by Raytheon which is the parent company of Collins Aerospace according to the breakingdefense.com website This partnership is a key step in supporting the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 to bring locally owned and manufactured products to the kingdom, according to Colin Mahoney, who is president of customer and account management at Collins Aerospace. Major General Ahmed Al-Jahani, the CEO of SRB, said the company and Collins, quote, will develop the framework to support research and development of strategic UAS, unmanned serial systems, and robotic technologies for the Saudi forces as we ambition to grow our offering with UAS weapons and urban air mobility solutions. SRB Aerial Systems is a leader in design, development, and production of unmanned Aerial Systems Products. Collins will be working with SRB on a trial flight in the second quarter of this year, with the drone system ready for production in 2024. As one of the only drone manufacturers in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, SRB Company has a goal of providing 100% locally owned and manufactured unmanned flight systems to the country. Collins' experience in producing cost-effective mission systems, hardware, and software, according to the news release, will be critical assets in developing the drone technology. Terms of the agreement were not disclosed. In the living section of today's paper is an interesting story written by the Mayo Clinic News Network. It says, Question. My husband has swapped out his regular morning coffee for an energy drink. Are these healthy options for getting his daily dose of caffeine? Do energy drinks have more caffeine than regular coffee? And how much caffeine is too much? Answer. People love their caffeine, whether it's coffee, tea, soda, or energy drinks like your husband. It's the most common stimulant in the world, and about 90% of all adults consume caffeine in some form every day. Many different caffeine options and flavors are readily available. Caffeine's health effects vary from person to person and depend on the dose. It's been shown to improve vigilance, reaction time, alertness, and ability to concentrate. It can help alleviate the adverse effects of sleep deprivation. Caffeine intake is also associated with the reduced risk of Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, alcoholic cirrhosis, and gout. However, caffeine intake also is linked with nervousness, insomnia, irritability, and panic attacks. Those with pre-existing anxiety disorders may be more susceptible to these effects. Caffeine can temporarily raise blood pressure, and a high intake has been associated with mild increase in cholesterol levels. People who routinely consume caffeine may develop physical and physiological dependence and may experience withdrawal systems if intake is abruptly stopped. Another ingredient to review in his energy drinks is sugar. Many can contain significant amounts of added sugar or other sweeteners. High intake of added sugar can contribute to a variety of health problems, so the Dietary Guidelines for Americans recommends limiting the intake of added sugars to no more than 10% of total daily calories. If your husband follows a 2,000-calorie diet, no more than 200 calories per day should come from added sugars. This is about 12 teaspoons a day. One of 16-ounce cans of some energy drinks can contain as much as 210 calories and 47 grams of added sugar, which is equal to roughly 12 teaspoons. This is an entire day's worth of added sugar. Energy drinks aren't all bad, though, especially when consumed in moderation. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Friday, February 24th. I'm your reader, Kelly Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening.